ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. This is an episode of the Straight Talking English podcast where I talk you through all manner of useful and interesting things about the GCSE English literature texts. We are carrying on with Jekyll and Hyde. And this is the episode which I have titled Gentleman, Sexuality and Utterson. Because I couldn't really think of anything else to call it because it's kind of a mishmash leading up to our Jekyll next week. I am of course Catherine, STR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com and soon to have finished the first Straight Talking English book which is the full context of Jekyll and Hyde. I've got my editors working on it right now. It is going to drop in August. It's going to be awesome if I do say so myself. So first up, first question, what is a gentleman? It is not as simple as just opening the door for a lady. We have in Victorian times in the 19th century a very weird, almost like a cult, which is emerging. Smarter people than me believe it's kind of a substitute for faith. As people are becoming more secular, they need to have a cult. They need to have a belief, some moral code that is going to get them through the day. And for many men of a certain income, that is the idea of being a gentleman. Have a look at this extract from a fabulous book called self-help which spawned the fact that we get self-help books today it's full of case studies which young people can read to try and improve themselves it's written by a chap called samuel smiles and he says the crown and glory of life is character it is the noblest possession of a man constituting a rank in itself and an estate in the general goodwill dignifying every station, exalting every position in society, it exercises a greater power than wealth and secures all the honour without the jealousies of fame. It carries with it an influence which always tells, for it is the result of proved honour, rectitude and consistency, qualities which, perhaps more than any other, command the general confidence and respect of all mankind. And... Characters are weird because it's one of the things that I hate most is when something rubbish happens to you and then someone tries to cheer you up and they say, oh, it's character building. And I'm like, please, I have enough personality. But character is actually its own, like, set concept in Victorian England. Character was what counted and it was developed by team games and by hardship. Cold baths, cold dormitories, runs in the rain, plain food helped to build character a boy must learn his place in a graded society. He was kept by a host of unwritten laws. To part your hair in the middle or put your hands in your pockets in the first year might mean a beating. But year by year, the growing boy acquired the right to do just what he would take care juniors should not do. Hardness, self-composure, coolness in the face of pain and anger, confidence in one's own opinions. These were the qualities required by the imperial class which are growing empire demanded but public schools claimed to teach more something it had hardly been necessary to teach to gentlemen by birth in elizabethan times a boy learned to do as he was told without question later he learned to take it for granted that he would be obeyed he learned to punish and to encourage he learned in short to rule and 
it's a thing that comes up in exams, like really reductive single statements, which is kind of my mission with doing this podcast and this book, is to ensure that people don't say really stupid reductive things in simple sentences. Mr Utterson represents the perfect Victorian gentleman. Okay, th that's cool, that is true, but it's not actually explaining anything. But we'll move on from that, he does. Look at the very first description that we get of him and tell me that that doesn't match up to the stereotypical description of a gentleman. Mr. Utterson, the lawyer, was a man of rugged countenance that was never lighted by a smile. Cold, scanty and embarrassed in discourse, backward in sentiment, lean, long, dusty, dreary and yet somehow lovable. At friendly meetings, when the wine was to his taste, something eminently human, beacon from his eyes, something indeed which never found its way into his talk, but which spoke not only in the silent symbols of the after-dinner face, but more often and loudly in the acts of his life. He was austere with himself, drank gin when he was alone to mortify a taste for vintages, and though he had enjoyed the theatre, had not crossed the doors of one for twenty years, but he had an approved tolerance for others, sometimes wondering, almost with envy, at the high pressure of spirits involved in their misdeeds, and in any extremity inclined to help rather than to reprove. I incline to Cain's heresy, he used to say quaintly. I let my brother go to the devil in his own way. In this character, it was frequently his fortune to be the last reputable acquaintance and the last good influence in the lives of downgoing men, and to such as these, so long as they came about his chambers. He never marked a shade of change in his demeanour. He is so perfect. And in some ways, Utterson is kind of two-dimensional. Like, Jekyll, we get a life story. Hyde, we learn a bit about him. But Utterson is just this, like, paper-cut-out perfect man. And partly the thing I read is, the reason I think that Stevenson's done this is to make him a reliable narrator. Imagine we're reading this, 1885-1886. We trust this man because he is a stereotype of the trustworthy man of society. He's also a lawyer, which makes the format of the book really interesting because it's almost like he's laying out documents as if we were a jury. We've got the story and then we have the letters included separately as different exhibit and it's in this role of a lawyer that we're invited to engage with the text. He is, however, incredibly boring. But I was a bit harsh in saying he's a cardboard cutout because he does break his own rules. Stupid Enfield, who I hate so much, Stupid Enfield says, I never ask questions. It reminds me of Queer Street, which I know it means strange in this time, but it's never, ever going to stop me giggling. And I'm recording this in Pride Month. And I'm like, Queer Street, does it? Does it, Mr. Enfield? Just a side note, Enfield, the reason he's so the story of the door was because he was out somewhere in the end of the world to quote him at 3am and I'm like really really like nothing good happens in Soho at 3am your best case scenario is to hit up tuk tuk noodles if it's still open hopefully get a night bus back to Penge like it's not gonna go well but he despite Enfield saying don't ask questions he investigates Hyde he can't resist he does drink he's not completely sober he does, despite saying I'm not going to get involved in Jekyll and basically ignoring his friend's distress, he does come when Paul calls him. So maybe there is a little bit more to it. 
Let's think about Lanyon for a second. Lanyon is a hearty, healthy, dapper, red-faced gentleman with a shock of hair, prematurely white, and a boisterous and decided manner. He is very masculine. But that description, the only one we have of Lanyon, already like foreshadow if something bad is going to happen to him. The shock of hair, prematurely white, as if he's had some kind of fright. But Lanyon is really cool because Lanyon almost crosses gender he is so upset by seeing Hyde that he gets a little bit weird Oh God, I screamed, and oh God, again and again, for there before my eyes, pale and shaken and half fainting and groping before him with his hands, like a man restored from death, there stood Henry Jekyll. Like, okay, he's supposed to be stiff up a bit, but like, it's a shocking thing, right? It's a shocking thing. I'm going to refer to Mrs. Beaton, who is an absolute don, by the way. She wrote one book and it was how to manage your household. It was like a how-to guide for women on how to like do stuff and there's recipes and there's like how to make a will and how to look after kids and stuff it's really really cool but she describes a condition called hysteria which is psychosomatic and is kind of made up she says young women who are subject to these fits are apt to think that they are suffering from all the ills that flesh is heir to that's in in very quotes and the false symptoms of disease that they show are like the true ones and it is often exceedingly difficult to detect the difference the fits themselves are mostly preceded by great depression of spirits, shedding of tears. Aha, uh-huh. he does start crying. Sickness, palpitation of the heart, etc. The pain, as if a nail were being driven in, is often felt at one particular part of the head. And it plays into this gothic imagery thing that hysteria and being afraid is a purely female emotion. And this is the horror of Hyde, is that he can give Mr. Manly Lanyon a woman's illness. He can take away his masculinity. That is how terrifying Hyde is. There is nothing that will scare a gentleman of the Victorian era more than being compared to a girly girl. But if we're thinking about girls, have a think about Jekyll because the way Jekyll is described is surprisingly female. A large, well-made, smooth-faced man of 50 with something of a slyish cast, perhaps, but every mark of capacity and kindness you could see by his looks he cherished for Mr Utterson a sincere and warm affection so he's got a smooth face everyone else is described as being like you know manly and cold but Utterson is kind well sorry Jekyll is kind and cherishing that immediately marks him out as an outsider which he might be in more ways than one the society that these men move in is called homosocial if we are being very very fancy pants with our words which means it is a solely male centred life they lead they work with men they go to gentlemen's clubs by which I'm not meaning like spearmint rhino or anything basically like um a clubhouse where you can have dinner, hang out with other men, read a book. The equivalent of like a lad's night, but very quiet. And then they come home and they don't see a woman at any point, which is what makes the descriptions of Lanyon's terror and Jekyll's smooth face so interesting. We need to talk for a second about 
this being a very metaphorical book. Lots of famous scholars say that this whole book is a metaphor for homosexuality. I'm going to have a little pause for a second. I'm going to do a disclaimer. I am, I don't have a background in queer studies. I'm an ally to the LGBT community, but I know the limits of my own study. I'm an English teacher by training and my degrees are in history, which ironically, I just want to point this out. The school I went to as a kid would not hire me because my degrees are in history. And I'm like, you're the ones that got me these qualifications surely I get a dispensation so apparently not but regardless back on track my background is not in queer studies I know that the word gay as we know it has different connotations now than it would in the 19th century so I say the word gay you might think of Ian McKellen you might think of Pride Mum you might think of Neil Patrick Harris and his family's themed Halloween costumes and I'm genuinely impressed about the time him and his husband have put in to um coordinate this because kids are not easy to wrangle more likely homosexual would be a word that people might use but i'm going to come on to sec to what that would actually mean in victorian times even though i know the word gay wouldn't be used i'm going to stick with it because the main point is not the self-definition of the word the main point is its relevance to jekyll and hyde i know gay isn't the correct word to use but it's going to be the one that i do however coming up i'm going to be talking about quite a lot of the bad and homophobic things which happened to gay men in particular because Queen Victoria insisted that lesbians didn't exist and therefore did not need legislating because it was impossible for women to love women. So if you are listening to this and you are lesbian, congratulations, you don't exist, Uh, which is a little bit confusing for many people. But again, back on point, I'm diverging Um, because I'm going to be talking about homophobia and horrible things happening to gay men. If that is something that is going to cause you issues uh too long don't read it's a metaphor for jackal being gay you can switch off now thank you for listening straight talking english on twitter resting our eight talking english Woo! if you are still with me let's talk about how absolutely awful it was to be gay in victorian times let's have a look at the first draft of jekyll and hyde in which lewis crossed out some of the word in his original draft he put I became in secret the slave of disgraceful pleasures which led on to a mire of vices which were criminal in the eyes of the law and abhorrent in themselves. He wrote, very specifically, my life was double. Right. So disgraceful pleasures in the eyes of the law, that could be anything. That could be any kind of like deviant, taboo sexual act. But the fact that he keeps using the word unspeakable about Hyde means it is almost definitely referring to homosexuality. A common euphemism for homosexuality is the lovelet dare not speak its name. If we look at the trial of Oscar Wilde in 1895, and Lewis and Oscar did not know each other, but Lewis's stepdaughter did know Wilde and when Wilde was in Reading Jail one of the books he requested was by Robert Louis Stevenson because he loved him so much. So quick extract from the trial. The lawyer says what is the love that dare not speak its name? And Wilde said the love that dare not speak its name in this century is such a great affection of an elder for a younger man as there is between David and Jonathan. Such as Plato made the very basis of his philosophy and such as you find in the sonnets of Michelangelo and Shakespeare. It is that deep spiritual affection that is pure as it is 
perfect. Wilde was very much brave in saying this because not only was homosexuality criminalised, it was just, there were campaigns against it. 1857, the Matrimonial Causes Act allowed women to divorce their husbands based on unreasonable behaviour. And this is a groundbreaking legislation in terms of women's rights and matrimonial rights. But unreasonable behaviour included explicitly the same category, rape, bestiality, and what they call sodomy, which is the act of gay sex. So it is literally the same as bestiality. Right, okay, cool. 1872, effeminacy, as in being a bit camp, and quote-unquote attempted sodomy were illegal, which I, I know, I know what they're getting at, but at which point do you draw the line at attempted? Is a guy saying to another guy, I really like your face. Uh, you can tell the level of my chat up game at this point. <laughs> your face is nice. Or I like your shirt. Is that an attempt? We don't know. One of Lewis's favourite books when he was at uni was Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. He actually had it hidden under the counter at his corner shop. When he went to buy Backy and was in the queue for too long, they'd bring out his poetry and he could read it in the queue which is one of the most Lewis things I've ever heard of but partly the reason it had to be hidden and had a fake cover on it was because it deals um, not obviously but it's not really very hidden the physical romance between the poet and another man owning and reading this book became illegal sometimes it just wouldn't have a title on it but you ended up with this like underground network of academics and literate people who were like have you read it yes i have and while some of these people were gay lewis was in that network of someone who was an admirer of whitman while lewis was in one of his weird rehabs in switzerland he met a chap called john addington simmons who was a critic and quote-unquote man of letters simmons was a close friend with lewis and he was also very much a closeted gay guy he was married with children but his relationship with his wife was kind of like friends who supported each other he confided in lewis about his situation their friendship continued after this revelation so it's reasonable to assume that lewis was at least sympathetic and considering how much lewis liked things that were weird or attention seeking or different i could see this kind of appealing to him like oh this is a bit different from what i've expected so far so he was at least sympathetic poor old simmons he he had a bit of an issue with Jekyll and Hyde because he felt it was based on his life but there's no like direct link however the fact that Simmons was forced to hide a big part of himself could well have played into it really good book which I recommend by the way is Outrages by Naomi Wolf which is about Simmons and is really really fab book i cannot recommend it enough 1885 though is coming in the wake of a dangerous expose which i will cover in the duality episode called the maiden tribute articles 
things in which a newspaper article basically exposed child trafficking. Coming in the wake of this, 1885 became a landmark year for moral hygiene. And in fact, the fact that we use the word dirty to describe anything that's like overly sexual comes from this time. We're gonna clean up society. Awesome, awesome, morals are awesome. But these campaigners managed to get legislation passed, which was really, really strict. This included consensually inviting a man for sex, even if both men were adult and provided consent, nope. The attempting sodomy was defined and could include chatting up and even like non-sexual activities like hugging. It included pornography regulation. Aha! The definition was so weird. So a book about family planning and contraception would be banned. A scientific display on reproductive systems, like this is where your uterus is, next will display that this is where your kidneys are, that will be banned. Mostly in case women or the working class saw it. And morally, as I said, morality is good, but there was not access to good information anyway. So scientific displays and medical pamphlets were the way that women would access health information that otherwise they wouldn't know. And this is the kicker, carrying out any activity that means homosexual encounters might happen even if you aren't there. So if you have a party, even if it's like a quiet dinner party, no like boozing or clubbing or anything, and you invite a bunch of people and two of them happen to be single gay guys and they later hook up, you are prosecuted because you allowed it to happen. You would end up with two years hard labour for that, which is awful. It's like two years picking stuff in a field or breaking rocks. And it is what Wilde ended up doing for his sentence at Reading Jail. He was forced to wear a mask and pick stuff outside and was mostly in isolation. It was a horrific activity. This legislation came in very shortly before the writing of Jekyll and Hyde. And... This had been brewing for a while. It wasn't like a surprise legislation. Like, people knew about this. The way to get round it, though, if you wanted to write about something, was in extended metaphors. So, this is a book with two gay guys in it, but it's set in ancient Greece. There is no parallels with today. Or... This is set in a faraway magical land. Or if you pretended it was like a different subject, like art history with naked men in Greece. Yeah. So this is my question. Is this what Louis did? Is this part of Louis's aim? Because you can see in his first drafts, he's far more open about the quote unquote unspeakable things that Hyde does. But he scribbles them out. Is he getting round the censors? Is he anonymising the secrets that his friend has told him? Has it affected other people Lewis knew? Because he's part of this network. He's part of this circle of Walt Whitman reading, literate men who were obviously very open with each other about their lives. Um, I mean, I, as I've said many times, you're all my therapists, but I've got to be pretty good friends with someone to talk about, you know, private it matters. So obviously like, they're they're good friends, they're good friends. Is this what's playing on his mind? But he's edited it down. Back to Jekyll. Jekyll says 
I can see all my pleasures. When I reached years of reflection and began to look round me and take stock of my progress and position in the world, I stood already committed to a profound duplicity of life. Many a man might have emblazoned such irregularities as I was guilty of, but from the high views I had set before me, I regarded and hid them with an almost morbid sense of shame. It was thus rather the exacting nature of my aspirations than any particular degradation in my faults that made me what I was, and with an even deeper trench than in the majority of men severed in me those dual provinces of good and ill which divide and compound man's dual nature. He is forced to mask who he really is because he's secretly gay. The whole thing as a metaphor really, really works. Considering Simmons's reaction, which was as an allegory, it touches one rather closely, I would love to know what a party at Stevenson's house would be like. That's mostly what I get from this. A party where all kinds of people were free to be themselves, talk about whatever they wanted to without fear of reprisals from a supportive if a little bit weird host because I reckon he must have seen masks metaphorical masks coming on and off and I think this engagement with that process is what drove some of the duality this issue with sexuality part of this duality is the force coming from the world to be a quote unquote gentleman Jekyll's got money he's respected as a doctor he's got good address he is expected to behave in that stiff upper lip cold artisan kind of way and that's what he can't reconcile if we take nothing else from this episode it is be true to who you are don't wear a mask or else you might be forced to make a potion that separates your good and bad sides and then an mp gets killed with a stick and someone gets trampled and then it gets turned into a book that people have to study 150 years later which is why, ladies and gentlemen, you must always be true to yourself. And that is my final thought, Jerry Springer style. Uh, next episode is going to be a little bit more on our good friend, Henry Jekyll. We're going to talk about his religion. We're going to talk about his drug addiction. We're going to talk about what a troubled person he is. And we're going to talk about the fact that Lewis basically said Stevenson was himself. As in like, no, he literally said Jekyll was himself. He said Jekyll answers to the name of Stevenson. So we're going to talk about writing yourself into a book much as J.B. Priestley did. Have a lovely, lovely time. I will return with the Jekyll episode next week. STRA Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com and have a lovely week.